by giving people the ability to grow and advance their careers, to contribute more. They're going to help grow the business. They're going to grow. They're going to want to stay. And then you sort of get this nice virtuous cycle. Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a longtime friend and colleague and someone I uh, feel very privileged to call a friend, and that's Facebook's Chief Revenue Officer, David Fisher. So welcome, David. Thanks so much, Matt. It's great to be here with you. Wonderful. So David, I, I want to start by going back to your time working for the U.S. government. And I know that your dad also had a history in high finance uh, and was a vice chair of the Federal Reserve, which is an incredibly prestigious position. Uh, and I'd love your reflections now. We're in an age where there used to be concerns about the debt and how our money was being managed as a country. And we're in an age now where no one ever brings that up anymore. And whatever we need, we seem to just be borrowing and borrowing more and more money. The national debt clock that used to be in Times Square is long gone, probably for the best in context with how things have gone. But having that treasury background that you have and knowing it's in your blood a little bit, I think your dad was also a governor for uh, the Bank of Israel. What do you think about all that? And are we setting future generations up for a very difficult situation? Matt, I, this, is, this is fun because as all our conversations we've had over the years, you never know where they're going to go. This, is, this isn't where I expect to go on your podcast, and I love it. Um, a couple of, couple of things I'll say up front. First of all, you mentioned my father, uh, Stanley Fisher, who is uh, when I was a kid, he was an academic professor at MIT and then went into public service in a bunch of ways. He served in senior roles at the World Bank, the IMF, he ran the Bank of Israel, and, and as you said, was at the Fed. Unfortunately, I'm not sure that economics gets passed through the gene pool, So, uh, but I think I've picked some things up between my time uh, talking to him and, and at the Treasury and other places. You know, I'll also make one more plug before I get right to your question, which is you mentioned I serve in government. and. I always like to talk to people like you and audiences like the one for your podcast, just to remind people, we have a, an incredible asset. There's, there's amazing people in government. Yeah, there's bureaucracy and some things are frustrating, but my experience there in the late 90s in the Clinton administration was really positive. And I think sometimes, especially having now been out in Silicon Valley for 20 years, People tend to be cynical or roll their eyes about government. And, and I think, I, I wish we had more people from this industry, from all industries who you know, would go and maybe spend two years or four years in Washington or in state government, because I, I think when, if you're gonna complain about something, you know, one good way to address it is to go try to fix it. And there's a lot of really good people. And, and I, I come away from that experience feeling positive about uh, about about the people and the quality of, of, of our government and, and I hope others will go serve as well. In terms of the question, I you know I think things have continued to evolve so much and and yes, I, I worry about some of the decisions that uh, 
that our government makes. I mean, in general, I would say, I think we're just in a place right now where it feels like short-termism and, and politics win out too often over what is in our long-term interest. And by the way, I see the same thing in the private sector about quarterly earnings over you know, some long-term investments. And it's hard. The reason it happens is because public officials face elections every two years or four years or six years, depending on their roles. CEOs, CMOs, CFOs are assessed quarter to quarter. And so I, I would actually expand your question to a broader concern, which is how do we get the right balance between long-term investments, long-term results, and the short run? And you know, I've been fortunate to be at a company where our CEO is very long run focused and he's okay with volatility. And some people like that, some people don't like that, but it it is liberating in some ways. I mean, one of the big things I observed coming from government out to Silicon Valley was it kind of blew me away. It took me about a year or two to actually adjust to the fact that the risk tolerance is kind of totally different than DC. DC, any little mistake is so consequential, both because you're going to be beat up politically and just, I think, the public's tolerance for any mistakes in government. And it's incredibly liberating to know to be in a place which is where you say, hey, we're going to take some risk and yet we're going to make some mistakes. And if you get it wrong, that's okay. Learn from that mistake. Don't make the same mistake again. But by the way, by taking more risk, we're going to have a lot more success. And I think that's so much the story, certainly of, of technology, of innovation that we see these last years, but really about American history going back a long ways. And, and so when I had the chance to work with a lot of companies, I always try to inject that a little bit to remind people that, that sometimes the biggest risks that you take are, are not taking any risks. Yeah, and I, and I think your comment about short-termism and, you know, is really dead on. I mean, early in my career, I worked in sport and we were bidding for events, international events that were seven, eight, nine, 10 years out. And when we would have a conversation in, you know, 1989 about bidding for an event that would be in 1998, sometimes it was tough to get folks to pay attention. But if you don't do that work, then in the early phase, you're never going to get to that later phase. So I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think we're better off when folks can think not just of the short term, but the medium and the long term. And it's hard to do. I don't want to discount that. I mean, that that's the challenge is you need to have enough success in the short run that you can actually get where you're going in the long run. I mean, I remember one of the companies that worked with early in my time at Facebook. So this would probably be, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 years ago was, was, uh, was, was back at JC Penney and the transformation, um, that a new CEO had come in from Apple was trying to lead there. And he was largely right, I think, about the direction and saw the, the writing on the wall for that company. But I think the his long run vision was good, but he wasn't able to manage the short term vision. So you can't do all one or the other. But I think as a as a company right now, as a country and, and certainly in the industry, I think we're skewing too much to the short term. Yeah, no, I agree with you. OK, so let's let's dial it back a little bit and go back to Ithaca. Going way back, the way back machine. We're all the way back, all the way back in our little great minds time machine. And you now sit on top of a company that, if the numbers I saw are right, give or take, generated somewhere is just south of $90 billion last year. 
And about 90, almost 98% of that was from the area that you oversee, advertising. Go back to Ithaca and Cornell and you work in international relations and government. And then I wanna get to uh, your tenure at US News and World Report as a journalist and working in that field. But did you imagine then that you would be sitting on top of what is one of the you know, most important, prolific, high impact players in a business that is you know, a, a trillion dollar industry? Not for a second, Matt, not for a second did I be myself in this role. And, and for me, that's part of the fun of a career. You know, I, um, at the time back at, uh, where I was an undergrad at Cornell, I studied, I majored in government, took a good amount of economics and had the view that I would go into areas like government international relations, which I did for a while. Uh, and towards the end of, of my time at, uh, at Cornell, I took an intro finance class and I remember really liking it and thinking, oh, this is interesting. If I knew what I, if I knew how much I'd enjoy this, you know, maybe I would have taken more business classes and kind of tucked that away and went with it. But, you know, the thing for me in my career that, that I've been really fortunate and I've, you know, certainly the last 20 years or so at Google and now at Facebook, you can sort of say, okay, those things all fit together. But prior to that, I had my career, if you tried to map it out, it had sort of been a, a big zigzag. And, you know, I'd, I had spent some time over in Russia working on ac economic reform in the early 90s. I had been a journalist for a few years, worked for the U.S. Treasury, and then came out and ended up at, uh, at Google and then Facebook. And for me, the thing that I realized pretty early on really motivates me is learning and being on the steep part of that learning curve. And I think that's true of most people. You know, it's you know, there's some people who want a career and you know what's going to happen today and next week and next month. And, you know, you can do that really well and come in and do it. For me, that that learning curve is, is so important and so valuable. And I find it really energizing and motivating. And so I've loved, you know, I, I won't give up anything I've done. I think there's just about everything I've done. I could probably do better the next time. But I've loved the journey. And, you know, you, I, you sometimes reach a point where you think, okay, that learning curve is flattening out a little bit. And, and I've discovered just through experience in my life, that's usually the time for me when it says, okay, time to go find something else. And part of what's so fun about our industry is things are changing so fast. It can be hard, you know, being on the steep part of the learning curve is uncomfortable and you have to get comfortable with discomfort. But I think to me, figuring out how to strike that balance is a lot more fun. Uh, and I think it's hard to stay in, in static environments and, and being in those dynamic ones provide me a lot of energy and excitement and motiv motivation. So you've had this absolute jambalaya of a career as, as you referenced in terms of, you pulled it zigzag, I'll call it jambalaya. One of the things I lament about young people today is very often teenagers don't work. Did you work as a kid? I did a variety of, of jobs as a kid. I did work. My, my first, I think, official job was I'm not even sure it was official. I think I was probably paid under the table to, at a landscaping company for the summer. I think the, I call it, say their employment practices were a little sketchy, but yeah, just went around doing landscaping work. No training, you know, OSHA would have had a, had a, a heart attack if they saw, you know, operating a wood chipper and all those kinds of things, but just good manual labor and did that. And then um, just did a variety of jobs over the summer and then ended up when I was in college doing internships in DC and at 
academic universities and and uh, and just pursue in various interests. But but to your point, I think it's so valuable because uh, you, you just learn so much. I'm an I'm an experiential learner as well. So getting out there and and rolling up your sleeves and doing literally rolling up your sleeves if you're landscaping or you know metaphorically if you're sitting in an office reading and writing stuff. I, I for me that's I learn more both about the subject matter but also figuring out what do you want to do and I do worry about that for people younger people today who maybe don't have that experience. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I learned more fighting it out on the streets of Manhattan when I was 15 and had a chipwitch cart than I learned in my four years at Emory University in terms of, you know, life survival skills. So I could not agree with you more. I mean, the other thing I would say is I had a, um, my parents were born and grew up in Southern Africa and, and my father worked in international economics. So we just traveled a ton as a kid. And I think that's something else that I really try to give to my kids and other people. And I just think getting out in the world, you learn so much just by being out there. And I think one of the biggest gifts my parents gave me is a sense that you can just pick up and go anywhere. I mentioned in 1993 that I went over to Russia. I'd never been to Russia. I barely spoke any Russian. I just got interested in what was going on there and had a chance to go and work over there on privatization, which didn't turn out so well, but at the time there was a lot of promise. And I think back now as, 20, as a 20 year old hopping on a plane to a country where I knew two people and had no idea where I was gonna live or what I was gonna do, but you just, I had this approach and, and I think just having a chance to travel with my parents and see the world, you realize people are people, you'll figure it out and you know, you'll get there and you'll, you can solve these things and, and, and you can figure out how to get around in the world. And I think that, that attitude is, and that mentality has served me really well. And when you were in Russia, that was an interesting time. That was, I guess, Yeltsin was premier then. We were in an era of enlightenment. A guy, you, name you may remember, Anatoly Subcheck, I think was a legendary mayor of St. Petersburg. I think Putin actually worked in that administration uh, many, many years ago. And clearly he's evolved in a very different manner. What were your reflections looking back? Were you in St. Petersburg or, or Moscow or, or elsewhere? I was in Moscow. And what, what were your reflections of that exciting time in what was had only fairly recently gone from being the Soviet Union to Russia? It's, it's really interesting that you ask, because I think about this a good, a good bit, because on the one hand, as you say, it was a, a time of great optimism. And honestly, there were, for people like me and, and frankly, a lot of Americans and people around the world, there was a lot of optimism about economic liberalization, reform, political reform, the collapse of the Soviet Union and what that might allow for the people of Russia and, and the former Soviet Union. And, and as you say, when you talk about Putin, it you know, hasn't worked out exactly the way that a lot of us thought or hoped. But I think one of the things that, that really struck me is when I wasn't working on weekends, I just tried to explore around Moscow, around other parts, around St. Petersburg, other parts of the former Soviet Union, was seeing people particularly, in my mind, I sort of drew a line around 40 to 50 age, the age 40 to 50, that people older than that, they had come up in a system, Soviet system, and when it collapsed, so much of their life, so much of the structure, where their jobs came from, where their income came from, where their apartment, where their living came from. And there were a lot of really unhappy and angry people. And so I saw a lot of street protests and would go and just observe. And, and that was one of the things that I actually took away, which, which was really important, which is as much as I was optimistic about a lot of the changes, just realizing that how ch hard change is for people and how much pain there is 
and kind of the human nature that comes in. We like to like the things that we do. We like to like the organizations, the systems that we're affiliated with. You know, it's the same. We started talking about sports. You know, why do we care so much about the sports teams? I grew up in Boston. I, I'm passionate about Boston sports team because I happen to be born there. But we like to affiliate with things. And when things change on us, it's really hard. And that, that I think, has, was one of the takeaways of just seeing the way that people... I mean, some people were genuinely suffering in the sense of they had lost income or they didn't know where their future income was going to come from, things like that. But also, I just think the mental challenges of a change in a system and how to come to grasp with that, how to come to terms with that. And, and we all face change. You know, we've already talked in this conversation about how difficult change can be, but that not embracing change or not or resisting change is its own form of risk and often failure. And so, you know, that's something that I really reflected on because because I'm a huge believer in you've got to take risks, you've got to morph and evolve, but you also have to recognize it's painful for people. It's painful for all of us, but some people in particular, and that we need to look after the people. And that's one of my views. I mean, that now we've done again, political views, but I, I think, you know, that that's an obligation that be it government's individuals, companies have is to try to also look out for people who need, need some extra help. Absolutely. And, and I view it not just as an obligation, but I think it's an opportunity for us. And uh, I know from your work in your ad council, I know how much you care about being able to leverage the platform that you have to help. And I think for me, that's the greatest privilege that we have is that we're able to figure out ways to help other people. I mean, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Matt, and, and working on the ad council where I've had the chance to be on the board and served as a board chair for 18 months. And the, the team there is extraordinary, but I think as extraordinary as they are, it gives me so much pride in the way that this whole industry comes together. You, know, you have competitors, sometimes bitter competitors, tackling big societal issues together. I mean, the ad council right now is in the midst of their biggest campaign in history and arguably the most important one around COVID vaccines and just seeing the way everyone in the industry rallies around it. And I think around a bigger cause. And that's another one of the, the learnings that, that I've had. And that I think it's always worth reminding yourself of if you give people a chance to do the right thing and to come together and empower them and not always going to do the right thing, but much more often than not are going to, and people are so motivated by that. And so I've had the chance to involve a lot of different people just at Facebook and, and volunteering to do a variety of campaigns, anti-bullying campaigns. Um, unfortunately, you know, some of the growing anti-hate, uh, you know, combating some of some of the hate crimes that we've seen, certainly this COVID uh, vaccination one. And I'm so grateful to people for volunteering their extra time to work on these campaigns. And they come back to thank the Ad Council. They thank me for the opportunity to do it. And it's a reminder, that, you know, there's so much value and we, we as people generally want to want to have an impact and, and help other people. As the COVID-19 vaccines become available, you might be asking yourself, should I get it? And if I do, will I be able to go about life without putting my family at risk? You've got questions and that's normal. The fact is the vaccines are safe and effective. They're going to save lives. To get the latest on the COVID-19 vaccines, visit GetVaccineAnswers.org because getting back to the moments we miss starts with getting informed. It's up to you. It's powerful and it's really beautiful to see, but I also think as 
as leaders in our industry, it's a, it's a good reminder. You know, this COVID experience this past year plus has really reminded me that, that sometimes in the face of the biggest challenges, you're reminded of just how extraordinary people can be and how much they're gonna to rally to the occasion. If you had told me back last March, everything we were gonna go through and then asked me what would be the impact and how we ran the company and how we were able to help businesses and people around the world and what was the outcome, I would have, I, I'm generally an optimistic person, but I would have painted a more, much more pessimistic picture because I just, you know, it, it's really extraordinary, but it's a good reminder and always, always bet on, on people. Yeah, we're going to get to that. And when your journey of commanding this enormous operation that you do from your home uh, the past year, as we all have been doing. Um, but let's let's go back and let's stay in the 90s, uh, not 90s hair, not 90s clothing, but uh, your tenure um, working as associate editor at U.S. News and World Report, which at that time, I think that might have been when Zuckerman owned it. Yeah, that's right. And that was a very influential magazine at that time. And we're in an age now where journalism is under siege. Uh, preparing for where you are now and Facebook's sort of centrality as a player in how we get news. What are your reflections on your tenure back then? I think you spent about three years there. So that's long enough to create some memories. I did. I, that's exactly right. It was three years, as I have to tell my kids, and fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of the people I work with, there were three news weekly magazines in the country at the time: the Newsweek Time and, and U.S. News. Then you have to tell people what a news weekly is. But you know, now we're now we're going too too deep. And um, and it was a great great experience. And I think the thing, frankly, that that was a lot of fun. I had no experience in journalism. I sort of happened into it as much by accident of someone referring me for, for a role. And I think just given some of what I'd studied, they were interested in hiring me at 22 and then realizing you could call up all sorts of experts in pretty much any field and get someone on the phone and then start talking to them and figuring out either. So often I had a, hey, I, I need to talk about this issue or you want to write a story about a given topic. Or sometimes it was kind of figuring out What's newsworthy? What's notable? What do people want to know? Particularly in News Weekly, where it's not, you know, what happened that day. It's, it's trying to reflect and provide a little analysis. Mark Darcy, who I think you know, who's our chief creative officer and runs business marketing uh, at Facebook, and is, is a colleague and a friend, once told me he was, he was, we were talking about a given issue, and he synthesized it in, in one line. And I said, you know, you're so good at what you do, and he said, you know, you are your first job, and what he meant was he said, I started as a copywriter. In some ways, I'll always be a copywriter. And for me, what US News did really early in my career is I think it really honed my ability to ask questions, to sort of figure out how to cut to the heart of an issue. And when I get feedback from my team, which I try to get a lot, and we have a formal process twice a year, a formal review process that we do a 360 degree review, I often get the feedback of, oh, you ask really good questions or you help bring out key areas of a given topic. And I think a lot of that just comes back to my time as a journalist and figuring out, particularly at News Weekly, where you have a broad range. It was not, you know, when I was at Treasury, we had a bunch of journalists who just covered the Treasury Department for all the major newspapers. I was covering a much broader range of things. So you kind of had to figure out what's going on and get up to speed quickly on a subject. And I think that's a really valuable skill. And so I, I enjoyed my time a lot. I decided in the end, I wanted to, rather than 
be a journalist observing and writing about what's going on. I want to be on the other side of the fence and and go and 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 be inside government and then companies. But but I think there's so much value in in what journalists do, and and uh, and I certainly took a, a ton away from that experience. Fantastic. And you then went from being sort of an East Coast guy to being a West Coast guy, going to Stanford to grad school and ultimately landing a pretty senior post at a relatively young age at Google, reflecting on the culture of our country. Uh, People talk about the coast and talk about the middle. You've had the benefit of living on both coasts, working on both coasts, and you've traveled everywhere. Talk about that transition in your life and reflections going from being an East Coast, New England, born and bred, to living out West. Well, I think the first thing that really struck me at the time, I moved out here where I'm talking to you from, uh, to, to Silicon Valley, to Palo Alto in 2000, just a couple months before the 2000 presidential election, Bush versus Gore, and I was coming from DC where presidential election every four years. I mean, you can't go anywhere, a work front or dinner parties without that being the topic of conversation. And it really struck me that almost no one was talking about it out here. Uh, and on top of it, we were. this was a little bit before the first dot-com crash. Uh, so things were kind of euphoric and then very quickly they weren't. So I did have a chance to really quickly realize that there's some big differences uh, between the coasts, but I also, as as we talked about a little earlier, had the the observation and realized that the whole risk reward equation, just how different it was between uh, government and Silicon Valley. I mean, I remember it when I came to Google, just the idea of this free food everywhere. Kind of all the benefits was great, but it kind of hurt my head. I mean, at Treasury, because it's the government and it's taxpayer dollar at work, you couldn't even get a free cup of coffee. You know, you the, you had to go buy, and I bought some really bad coffee. My salary was uh, was pretty low at the time, but it was fine. I, I, I think it's as it should be. And so there's definitely that culture shock. But I think the biggest thing, um, I guess a couple of observations. I think, you know, you realize in some ways um, the cultures needed to come together. And, you know, one of the things of the last 20 years is, is I think we've gone from a place of, of technology and innovation a lot, sort of just saying, hey, government stay out, you know, we'll, we'll be fine. If left to our own device, everything would be fine to realize that you need sensible regulation, again, not all regulation. And, you know, you need good relationships with government and, and every industry needs that. And you need to, to interact. But, you know, then the, the point that I've made a couple of times of also realizing that being too conservative and, and fighting change at every turn, which happens frankly, in a lot of industries, at a lot of companies, and certainly in, we see this in government, is really can be really damaging. And so that it's not only liberating and fun to be in a place where you can take more risk, but I think it's just really important because it's not as if, you know, if Facebook didn't innovate, it's not as if, oh, well, the world is going to lose out on some new product. No, someone else is going to do it or 10 other people are going to do it. And particularly now, one of the things that's been really fun but challenging is just seeing how much more global competition is right now. I mean, there was a time when I started Google, this is a gross generalization, but it felt largely true that when new products came out, new features, or um, we weren't so much in apps then, it was was more web-based, but you kind of see them in the US, they'd make their way to Western Europe, and then they'd 
sort of morph around the globe to more developing countries. And, and so you could sort of, when you went to places like India, you might say, oh, okay, they're not quite there yet, but you could figure out, you could sort of have a, a guess at the pace of what was to come. Now I feel like innovation has happened everywhere and it really is a global competition, both for talent, for getting people on board, but for innovation. And that's challenging and it certainly pre presents some threats to the United States, but I also think it's, it's, it's as it should be. People are more empowered, have the opportunity to, uh, to create their own success. And it also just means things are, are happening at incredible pace. I've had the, the good fortune to spend a bunch of the last few years working uh, with our teams in India and leading those, leading our organizations there. And it is just fascinating what is going on, but it's also competitive as hell. You know, you gotta, you really have to be investing and have your finger on the pulse because, you know, they've gone from an environment where their data costs on their mobile phones were some of the highest in the world to now they're pretty much at the lowest in the world. And that just fundamentally has opened up so many opportunities for people to get access to information, to apps and to change people's lives. And it's, it's really, it's really fun, but you also, you know, you better hang on because things are changing quickly. You know, they sure are. I guess we uh, are way past the pace of change of uh, what used to be the barometer in Moore's law. That uh, that seems quite, quite, quite dated in many ways. So, David, you spent uh, about eight years or so at Google. And uh, by the time you're done at Facebook, it'll be give or take a dozen years. That's unusual for someone at such a young age to spend such a long period of time. And you've also been there during seminal moments of products that were introduced that forever changed the business, like AdWords at Google, acquisitions, the rise of YouTube at Facebook, of course, the acquisition of Instagram and, and other acquisitions. Reflecting on AdWords first, you were a central, central player uh, in the rise of AdWords, which at that time really redefined the business. Years ago, we had Chris Cox speak at Advertising Week Asia. And he talked about the early days and showed a photo of what it was like in the very beginning when uh, he shared an office with Mark and a few others and a group of engineers who at that time were working on what would become Android. Only then yeah. no, one, no one knew what it was, I suppose, way back when at the very beginning. What was that like going back to your tenure at Google, which you joined right out of Stanford after you got your MBA, and what do you remember from the early days of AdWords and that beginning of a very successful eight-year run at Google? When I came into Google, AdWords was four or five months old. And what was interesting is what Google knew, what no one else quite knew, was just how successful it was right off the bat. And it was funny. I remember uh, a, a former mentor, or I guess she's still a mentor, but someone who I'd worked for earlier in my career, more on the government side of things. And I went to work there saying something to me after I, I think I caught up with her after six months or so. And she, she kind of said nicely, but slightly sympathetically, are you guys going to make it? You know, how, how are you ever going to make money? You know, you have this great product and it's free. And you sort of thought, wow, we've developed this business model and it's unbelievable. And, and uh, it's grown like crazy. And, you know, I think one of the things that, that I try to re remind myself and we see it, so often is that whenever you think things are stable or you think things are figured out, something new is coming 
is coming soon. Someone else is working on something you haven't even thought of yet, or maybe it's out there and you just haven't figured out how powerful it is. You know, you talked about YouTube earlier and, and Google's acquisition, which some people argue, and I think there's a good case to be made, is, is one of the most successful acquisitions in history. But for a, lot, a long time, people sort of questioned, is that thing, is it a bust? You know, the server costs are so high just to store all that video. Will you ever be able to make money off it? Now, of course, it's doing so well on so many dimensions and it faces challenges on a lot of dimensions. And so I think that, you know, I guess the the a few of my observations were just, you know, that how quickly things change, um, how much opportunity there is, but you need to really uh, move fast and go and to build these businesses. I mean, it takes, it takes real work. And I think sometimes we see successful ideas that are too soon. Sometimes they're too late. Sometimes they're great ideas that are poorly executed. I always think successful startups that grow into real companies are a miracle because there's so many damn things that can go wrong to, to end up driving them to their death. You need to get a lot of things right. But again, going back to this, the thing I mentioned earlier, a theme I mentioned earlier about betting on people. And, and you know, you see so many great examples. There's so many stories from the history of Facebook or the history of Google or a million other companies of how people, you know, came to these near-death moments and then overcame them, sometimes just through sheer hustle, sometimes through innovation, usually through taking big risks. Um, and uh and, and, you know, it's a reminder that, yeah, each one of those is kind of miraculous, but when you look at how many of those miraculous events there are, you realize, you know, these things are possible. And I think for me, compared to my time in, in Washington versus Silicon Valley, you realize that these, you know, you realize that there's a lot more that's possible if you kind of jump into the deep end of the pool and, and, uh, and say, we're going to swim around and figure this thing out. So somewhere in early 2010, you get a phone call or an email and end up reuniting with someone that you knew from the Clinton administration and Sheryl Sandberg. Go back to that first communication. Was it something that was a surprise? Was it a phone call? Was it an email? Give us the journey from Google to Facebook. Sheryl and I had known each other, as you say, from back since 97 and had worked really closely at Treasury and then had worked at Google. And then she had gone to Facebook a couple of years earlier and I had stayed on at Google. She sent me an email that we joke about that basically, uh, it's time, call me. And, uh, and we ended up talking to, in the next couple of days, and she laid out an opportunity about a new role that they were creating to build and grow the, uh, the business. And by the way, there were, there were an amazing group of people there who had already gotten the thing off the ground, and it was scaling up. It was, it was the year I joined in 2010. The company made about three quarters of a billion dollars, which is no joke at all. We've obviously scaled a lot, a uh, hundred times bigger. Or so, um, which which I'm really proud of. But, um, but I think it was seeing the opportunity. And frankly, in my time at Google, I'd been hearing more, more and more from our advertisers talking about, oh yeah, I'm starting to invest in Facebook and I'm starting to see them them succeeding. But I think you know part of it was the opportunity, but a big part of it was were the people. Starting with Cheryl, who is a really close friend, but also I think, you know, as I've been reflecting most recently, just on, on this period of time, as I, as I start to think about exiting Facebook later this year and what's to come, you know, one of the things that I think Cheryl is so uniquely talented in so many ways, but one area that particularly stands out for me is, is she sees opportunity in people 
oftentimes before they do. And I think that was true for me and knowing that she believed in me and she, again, took some risks and threw me into some, uh, into some roles, into the, threw me into the deep end of the pool. And, and frankly, I think she saw that I could succeed before I could see that I could succeed. And that's a gift, that, that was a real gift and uh, something I try to pass forward as much as I can. But I think, you know, going back to your question, I guess the, the combination of, I always say when people are thinking about career changes, you know, there are three things to assess. There's the, um, there's the company, there's the people, and there's the role itself. And you ideally want to check all, all three. But I, what I always say is you can't, if you don't have the right people, don't do it because your colleagues, everyone I know, and I know this is really true, true of you and uh, certainly my colleagues at Facebook and me, people work really hard. And that, that's great. I, I enjoy doing that. There's a big difference between working really hard with assholes versus working really hard with people. You feel like you're all in this together and you have each other's back. Even by the way, that doesn't mean I, we don't disagree. I would say at Facebook, people fight it out over issues as hard as I've seen anywhere. But at the end of the day, there's also a collegiality and a support that underlies that. So once you figure out who's going to win the argument, then you're going to come back together. And that's the thing that, uh, that I both, I think, uh, will take the most pride in for having built, you know, a bunch of teams there and hired a lot of people is I think if you can maintain that hire quality people and people you want to work with and you respect, all sorts of things become possible. So I've been lucky enough to have been traveling out to see you and colleagues of yours uh, for many, many years. And we started Advertising Week in 2004, which was about a year before Facebook was launched. Yeah. And we started going out there soon after. And I'm 99% sure the first time I went out there, the office was above a storefront in Palo Alto. There, that's right. And I think the owner of that, of that, of that uh, building has put up a little plaque there. So you can still, you can still find it. And then I remember every year afterwards, I would go out once a year just to see the people that we were working with in person, which you and I have had a nice tradition doing the last few years. And every time I would go, the office would be somewhere else and would be yeah. a little bit bigger. And the last time we had one of our uh, December lunches, probably two years ago, pre-pandemic, you were at the what was the old Sun Microsystems campus. And I was awed by the size of the campus, the size of your operation. And what I reflected on was something that I've said when introducing Facebook seminars all over the world, as it's been a privilege for me to get to do the last 15 years or so, is you have uniquely been able to attract, nurture, and retain your senior talent. And a lot of that, David, at Facebook has come down to you where you were able to attract people like Carolyn and later Nada and others and keep your team together. What is it about the culture there? And I guess it all starts from the top, but what is it that's allowed you to attract and retain such an extraordinarily talented team? Well, there are a few things, Matt. Before, before I jump into that, I did just wanna say, because as you were reflecting on, on our our collaboration and friendship over the years. I, I just 
want to say what an extraordinary partner you are and have been and, and how much we enjoy working with you. And as you know, Advertising Week New York is a, uh, it's a huge event for the industry and for us. And we've really enjoyed that and expanding to other places. You mentioned Asia and uh, Mexico City and Europe and all the other places where we've had the chance to, uh, to participate in your events. And, and, uh, and we really appreciate that and, and also get a lot of value out of it. You know, in, in terms of building the teams and re retaining people, I think there's a few things that I would point to. It, one is just, you talked about from the top down. You know, one of the, the things about Facebook that I really enjoy is that it's a, it's a learning culture. And that does start at the top. That, that you know, I remember my interview with Mark when, when uh, going back to 2010, before I joined the company, that it struck me in the interview, we had met once or twice, but didn't really know each other, that he was getting to know me and, and assessing me, but he also was using it as an opportunity to learn more about the ad industry. And particularly back then, I mean, he is so much more knowledgeable now. Uh, and I, I've seen this time and again, where, you know, he's, he's no shrinking violet and he has opinions, but is always in the mode that, you know, what more can I learn? What, what, what don't we know? And being open to rather than sort of, oh, we have something all figured out that there's always, what is that next thing to figure out? And so I think being a learning culture is one where you're investing, you know, you have to, to have that kind of culture. You're always investing in people. You need to be getting out of people, you know, what does everyone have to offer? What do, what is, what do people know that can, we can all learn from, that we can do a better job as a company than we've all seen top-down companies and some of them are even successful, but, you know, that one, I don't find those fun, but two, you know, you're so reliant on a few people at the top versus you can have hundreds and now thousands and now tens of thousands of people, really talented people who can actually all contribute into, uh, into driving the organization all the better. A second thing, and I, I think I really learned this from Cheryl and the, and the example I mentioned earlier about her is just you know, really investing in and betting on people in your organization and giving them more opportunity. I think too often people can see authority, power, decision-making as a zero-sum game, you know, that there's a pie and who's, how much are we going to divvy up and how much are we going to give to this person? But but my experience is the opposite, is that the more you can give people, the more you can grow your pie, and then everybody's going to do better. And I think that's part of what retains people. Now, it helps, obviously, to have a, a successful and thriving business, but it's not cause and effect. I think it's more symbiotic that, you know, by, by giving people the ability to grow and advance their careers, to contribute more, they're going to help grow the business, they're going to grow, they're going to want to stay, and then you sort of get this, this nice virtuous cycle going but you also need to have a, have a strong business around that. But I, I think that's one where I just take a, a ton of pride is just looking at the different roles that you see people play, the personal growth you see, the professional growth, and how that all contributes to both a great culture, a learning culture, but also a successful business. And so that's the part that, you know, I mentioned the people dimension is so important when you're assessing any role, any company, any, any opportunity. It's also the one that I really take the most pride in of, of being able to be at a part of, of a company and organization where I think, you know, we've genuinely been able to attract and then grow and retain some amazing people. And, and I just, I consider myself really fortunate to have been in that position. Well, I, I, I think that little statistic that you threw out there, and I don't want to gloss over, you know, overseeing a hundred times growth during your tenure 
um, and the role that the team that you've assembled has played in that, I think those things are absolutely connected. So that's something you should be super proud of. Thanks. Yeah. And I, you're absolutely right. You can't do one without the other. So about a year, a little over a year, um, all of a sudden, our lives come to a screeching halt. You're overseeing a global team. Like all of us, you're used to running from one airport to the next. And uh, all of a sudden, the game of musical chairs that we all play, the music stops for everyone. And the world is united in common experience. Uh, it's remarkable the lessons we still have to learn, certainly in this country, about how we are all connected and what happens in one place will happen here and that it's all meaningful. What was that like for you when you realized, wait a minute, this is not going to be over in a few weeks or a few months, and your job is to keep the trains moving, to keep the growth going, and to command that team and keep yourself up emotionally? That's got to be tough. I know I've struggled with that at various points the past year is when you're sort of the manager of the football team, your job is to always be up. What was that like going reflecting then and unimaginable here we are now and it all kind of worked the past year without us running from airport to airport and meeting to meeting somehow. That's right. And there's, it, it's wild to look back now and, and to think about it. The, um, you know, the first thing, I guess, that uh, that we have both the good fortune and at times the challenge of, of being a truly global business. And so in some ways, you know, when it came and hit here in March of 2020, our teams in, in Asia and China in particular, we don't have offices in mainland China. We have offices in Hong Kong. But we had people, I remember, we had a few people who were, visiting at home in Wuhan at the time that the virus first hit and they got quarantined there. And I remember getting on and talking to them just to check in how they're doing. But we had some experience of going through this and having a sense of how do we manage? How do we suddenly start to, to work from home? But it's obviously different when suddenly it takes off and it's, uh, it, it's hitting you head on. And I, I'll have to be honest, I, I didn't have a sense, you know, I knew we might be home for a few weeks. I, I did not, uh, I did not have any sense of, of quite the magnitude of what it would, what it would look like. But I think the things that uh, stand out to me looking back at it now were a couple of things. One, I think just trying to be really transparent and clear about it. You know, you were going to put people first and, and look out for people that meant certainly the people uh, on the team, but that also meant our contractors. We have tens of thousands of contractors. We have employees, we're fortunate enough to have a culinary staff who cooks us meals, you know, we, we have free meals uh, at the company and looking out for all those people. And, and, fr and frankly, we're fortunate to be in a position where we could do that financially. Not everybody could keep the lights on and keep the business running. But then I think the thing that, uh, that really struck me is just how people rallied and the commitment and that's true within Facebook, that's true of the companies that we work with, of partners, of a huge variety of people that, that um, you know, I, I'm someone who likes to be in the office. I'm here in my home office where I've been for the last 13, 14 months. I, I can't complain in the scheme of things. I'm very fortunate, but I would love to be back in the office. I can't wait till we can get in the doors and, and be back in the office. But just seeing people rallying behind the commitment to 
to our clients, to businesses around the world, and to supporting them. And you know, frankly, that's been true with so many companies. But you know, we work with millions, hundreds of millions of small businesses around the world who are on our platforms, and we see we saw, seen some really terrible situations. And and a bunch of businesses have shuttered shuttered their doors. But I've had the chance to to get to know, excuse me, to get to know a bunch of businesses and business owners, and uh, who have just you know, rallying in extraordinary ways. I, I had a chance to uh, to meet a woman named Stasha Harris in, in Brooklyn. Uh, she started a, a hair braiding business called Madger's Magic Finger Studio back in 2009, opened a second one. She had to shut it down. She figured out that using Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, places like that, she could actually run her business that way. Um, so many other businesses here in the US, around the world. And and, you know, that stuff is really motivating. And again, it just goes back to this theme of if you bet on people, if you empower people and give them the steer and give them the resources. And again, I want to be clear, we were really fortunate. We we had resources to look after our people, say things like, OK, here's a thousand dollars to everybody to set up a home office. So, you know, each of us probably needs something different. Um, I'm talking to you here at my standing desk that uh, that I got, you know, because I my desk was fine for for a couple hours here and there, but for full time, I needed something different. But um, and we created some grants programs and various support programs for businesses. So hundred million dollars for uh, small businesses around the world, a hundred million dollar grant program for for black owned businesses and and creators and others. And so you know, also that opportunity both and and frankly, we we changed our whole product roadmap. We invested a lot in shops to help brick and mortar businesses develop online presences. So, you know, I think there, there was an energy that came out of it, even though I would never wish, wish for it again. Um, and, and I take a lot of pride in that, just seeing the way that, that people within the company, outside the company have really rallied and risen to the occasion. And we can sit here now and can't wait, you know, with, with uh, I hope folks are getting vaccines and, you know, that, that part feels good, but I'm also just really proud and, and of the way that, that people have responded to just a really lousy situation. Yeah, no, absolutely. So just to wrap up, uh, Dave, and this has been fantastic. And thank you for your, your kind words about our partnership earlier. It's a, it's a mutual admiration society. Uh, to wrap up, about three weeks ago, a report came out that you were going to leave Facebook at the end of the year. What is out there? We're not in the breaking news business here on Great Minds. I will not ask you any questions, which I know you won't answer. But what is out there when you lay awake at night that you say, here's some things that I haven't been able to get to that I would like to have the time to focus on. And if we were to look at a crystal ball and look at David Fisher in a year or two or three, what do you think we might see in that crystal ball? It's a great question. It's one that I'm working hard to do two things. One, not answer for quite a period of time. As you said, I'm gonna be at Facebook through much of the year and, um, and wanna ensure a smooth transition and do everything I can to make sure that this next decade is even more successful than the last one for, for our teams, for the businesses we, we work with around the world. So I'm gonna focus on that. And then, um, and then I wanna give myself something I've never really done in my life, which is take some time just to, to think and reflect on what, what to do next. And that's a real luxury. But I think for me, you know, I, I go back to that steep part of the learning curve and to where I can have impact. And, and 
I don't know what that'll be. And, and there's so many, you know, what I know is been heads down at, at Facebook, have loved the experience. It's been the job of a lifetime, but there's so much, so many fascinating things happening in this industry and other industries and getting out there and just learning a little, talking to people, catching up and, and seeing. And, you know, then there's other things completely different. You know, I talked about starting my career in public service and working in government and being a big believer in that. And, you know, maybe there's something there, some ways I can contribute there as well. I, I don't know. And I'm, I'm uh, enjoying the, having the answer. I don't know. And I've sort of committed to myself that I'm going to keep saying, I don't know for a good, good amount of time, but look forward to figuring out what it is that, that comes next. It'll be something, but, uh, but I'm also looking forward to, you know, after I exit later this year, taking next winter and spend a bunch of time with my family and with friends and connecting and, you know, hopefully by then maybe doing some traveling, which I'm a little, as you said, we used to spend so much time in airports and that's ground to a halt and, and, and then figuring out what's to come. And, and, you know, it, it may not, it'll be very hard to top these, these past 11 years, but I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm just really grateful and looking forward to figuring it out. You know, there was a great sports writer years ago named Jimmy Cannon. He was a legendary writer. And he used to start every column with nobody asked me, but. Yeah. So under the heading of nobody asked me, but I would stay with, I don't know, as long as you can, because it's no one's business, but yours. And you have earned the time to say, I don't know, and to be able to do and follow whatever pursuits you want to. And I, and I think it's rare that someone who's still got, you know, their best years ahead of them has put themselves in a position to be able to do that. But you have earned that, David. And uh, I hope you enjoy every minute of it. But we're not done with you yet. I know your company's not done with you yet. And we're looking forward to uh, getting to be with you and in cahoots with your terrific team as long as you're around and uh, with mixed feelings after you're gone. Well, thanks, Matt. That that uh, I really appreciate that. It means a lot to me. And and you know, as as we've been talking about our our histories, our time together. I mean, I've just really enjoyed working with you and the and the the friendship we've developed. And you know, whatever's to come. And and I'll I'll uh, keep working at that. I don't know, but I look forward to continuing that friendship and hopefully some collaboration in whatever ways to come. So thanks so much. The best is yet to come, David. Thanks so much for doing this. It was a joy. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Matt.